We are back and in this hour of Ariva Martin in real time, I'm going one-on-one with the co-authors of a new book, Rebecca Not Becky, Christine Platt, who is also the executive director of Baldwin for the Arts is here, along with Catherine Wigington-Green. She's also co-author of the book. She's a writer, filmmaker, and creator of the feature documentary, I'm Not Racist, Am I? Welcome, Christine, and welcome, Catherine. Thanks to both of you for joining me today. I want to start with first congratulating both of you on your book. Uh, I hope it's everything you uh, hope for. Uh, you want to get all the details about how the book is being received. And I also want to talk some about how the two of you uh, came together and, and the impetus for writing this book. So I'll start with you, Catherine. You know, give us the backstory about how you and Christine. Uh, met and how the, uh, the, you know, the, how you made the decision that you wanted to write a book, particularly a book that focused on these topics. Thanks for having us. We're really excited to be here to talk with you. Um, So I first met Christine several years ago when I was doing a lot of work in the anti-racism arena Um, with my documentary that you mentioned, I'm Not Racist, Am I? I was invited to screen it as part of uh, a big festival that Christine was organizing through her work at the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center. And so we met doing this. I had been taking the film around for at this point, it's been a decade, uh, leading dialogue about race and racism. And when Christine approached me with the idea of co-authoring a novel, we were in the wake of George Floyd. We were um, in that time where there was an urgency to talk about race, to learn about race uh, from a lot of people who were sort of new to the movement. And so we saw um, a lot of people posting photographs online on Instagram of all the books they were reading to mm-hmm. uh, do a crash course on racism. and. Uh, everyone, you know, it was a really serious and fraught time. And we thought, you know, what if we tried to enter into this conversation in a slightly different way, um, through fiction, through friendship, through community. And that's how we we came together to, to come up with the idea for Rebecca, not Becky. Yeah, I was going to ask you, uh, you know, Christine, why fiction? Because, you know, as Catherine said, during the aftermath of George Floyd, there was just a flood of books written by many Black authors that dealt with the issue of race. Many of them did it in a nonfiction uh, context. So, so you know, why did you want to tell this story or talk about these very, very difficult and challenging topics uh, through a fictional book? Yes, uh, as Catherine mentioned, thank you again for having us. Um, I am actually uh, a historian um, by trade. I have a bachelor's and master's in African-American history and culture. And so a lot of the books at that time that were making their way onto these social media platforms, they'd actually been around for a while in academia. A lot of them were never really meant for public consumption, right? They were um, very much academic text, which meant um, they're, they're definitely required a certain level of, um, you know, scholarly research and um, mm-hmm. an approach to take to some of these books, um, which is why they were probably a little difficult for some folks and also made it, um, you know, difficult to get to the root cause of what we were trying to sort of attack at this time, which is, you know, how did we get here and how can we bring about change? Um, and what we know is that fiction has long since been used as a wonderful teaching tool. Um, we use it all the time for children, right? We look at books as windows and mirrors, as Dr. Mm-hmm. Rudine Sims Bishop taught us, right? 
And the same approach um, actually works really well um, for adults. And so we thought, here's an opportunity for us to, you know, move beyond sort of this teaching approach to about, you know, race and racism, and this is wrong, and this is bad, and really show how a lot of this looks in practice and in, in our real lives. And the best way we thought to do that was through fictionalizing uh, this story and these characters. Um, but as you can tell from some of the reviews, people are, are seeing themselves, which is exactly what Catherine and I wanted with this book. Yeah. So, you know, did you have any painful discussions or, you know, discussions that felt like there weren't any solutions to some of these big thorny problems around race? We know in this moment, uh, Christine, that oftentimes when people try to have a conversation about race, it just deteriorates into a big shouting match, an argument, or, you know, people don't feel gratified, uh, you know, at the end of these conversations. What was the kind of the writing process for the two of you? Yeah, um, you know, I, I'm glad that you said that. And I'll definitely let Catherine jump in here. Um, you know, we had had an opportunity, as she mentioned, to work together as colleagues long before we decided to write this book. I've been, mm -hmm. uh, been very mindful to tell people, I, you know, I just didn't pick a, a white woman to write a book with. <laughs> you know, this is someone who, um, you know, I'd worked with um, for several years, someone who myself and others in the activist community had deemed an ally, right? And so I knew that even though, of course, there were going to be difficult topics and difficult challenges that we would try to weave into this narrative, I knew that I was working with someone who had a long history of doing anti-racist education, research, mm -hmm. and facilitating difficult dialogue. Um, and so, yeah, there were things that come up, but but nothing that uh, that we could manage together. Well, and let me ask you this. So you guys did have that relationship and maybe that made some of these conversations easier uh, for you. But, you know, have you had anyone say to you, uh, you know, Catherine, that they've tried to have white friends, they've tried to make white friends or they've tried to make black friends the opposite and it didn't go so well? Yeah, we hear that a lot. Um, I mean, I think it's this is fraught. Um, and we see it with Rebecca Myland, you know, the white main character in the book, that she is so desperate to prove that she is the best ally who ever allied <laughs> out mm -hmm. here. She wants to bring diversity into her life, into her life that she's created for herself, of course. Um, and she wants to have black friends. She is thrilled when DeAndrea Whitman, the other, the black main character in the book moves to town mm -hmm. and she thinks, oh, this is the way that I can engage in, engage in real work toward racial equity is to have a black friend. And so in that, and through her story, we're trying to have a little bit of fun with that notion of, you know, some of my best friends are black, right? That's going to actually solve these problems. Although we do know that being in proximity to one another and having friendships is really important, but it is hard. And what happens for Rebecca and DeAndre and why it's hard is because Rebecca first sees her as a black woman only and not as a woman who has moved to her town, who is lonely, who's at a personal crossroads, who's having challenges in her marriage and in parenting and being a caregiver to um, elderly parents. And so all of that makes um, it really difficult to be a friend. Um, and for Rebecca to have a friendship with DeAndrea because she's not seeing her as a human being fully. She's seeing her as someone who fulfills a need for her to feel good about herself. And that's the journey that Rebecca has to go on. And I think that a lot of white people have to go on. 
So I, I know the book kind of alternates chapters and, and you wrote the chapters, obviously. Uh, well, I shouldn't say obviously, but you wrote the the <laughs> chapters. It's not, doesn't ha didn't have to be that way. But Christine, you wrote the chapters for the black character and Catherine wrote the chapters for the white characters. Uh, and, and was that so that you could write those, you know, through the lenses of a black woman and a white woman uninfluenced by the other person? Absolutely. And I, you know, shout out to Amistad and Harper for really trusting us with this narrative because we really wanted to make sure that these characters were authentic, right? Mm -hmm. um, traditionally, especially with diverse narratives, I'm speaking from uh, DeAndrea's chapters, right? There's a lot of explanation, right? You know, we'll use terminology or jargon that is unique to, you know, Black history and culture. And then there's this expectation that we're supposed to also explain it and weave it into, you know, the narrative for the white readers, right? And, um, you know, one of the things that Catherine and I just loved early on when we had beta readers looking at the book is, you know, we had, you know, white readers that said, oh, man, I had to go look up some stuff, right? You know, I wanted, you know, like, if you're here to learn, right, here's an opportunity to do that. Um, and so, yeah, we decided to write in alternating chapters. I think the one thing that Catherine and I did have fun with is that obviously I have not mastered Becky's dialogue and voice. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I would say certain, make certain statements that uh, Catherine would say, uh, Becky would not say that, you know? And so we... <laughs> We got, we got, uh, we we got to the into the habit of uh, fixing dialogue for each other. And I know it's a, you know, it's a fictional book, so it's not like a historical book. It's not, you know, factual. It's, but what do you want the readers to take away? Like, what what is the takeaway you want readers uh, to leave after having read this book? Obviously, all the reviews talk about it being fun, it being witty. Uh, but beyond that, is there some deeper thing that you want people to walk away with? I mean, Catherine. Yeah, sure. So I think one thing I'll say is that even though it doesn't teach a lot of history, it is embedded and infused with history and analysis of structural racism and inequity in the U.S. I mean, in every corner you can find that of the book within the margins there is um, just it's so rich and dense with context. Um, and so we do think that the story is really complex and layered, but wrapped in a beach read. So it's accessible. The plot moves you through it quickly. And um, I think it's sort of sneaky in that way that you think you're just getting a fun read. And then all of a sudden you start to really dive in and there's layers to it. So that every layer, there's an invitation to go a little bit deeper. So you might start off with saying, I want to read about these two women who are um, black and white and how they might have a friendship. And maybe it'll be sort of funny and I'll learn about microaggressions or stereotypes and, and have a like be able to, you know, have a little fun with myself as well. And I read it, but then we can go deeper and deeper into thinking about women's relationships, um, how their lives have been affected by structural inequity, how the existence of their very, their town even is a result of structural racism. Um, it really, there is so much there that you can go really deep. And we think that, you know, for us, what we really want is for people to not only read the book on their own, but then to talk about it and read about it with people in their communities. And one of the best things that happened was at our book launch event last week, there were people who had already pre-purchased the book and we had signed them in advance. 
And then after our talk, which was moderated by Gloria Edom of Well Red Black Girl and who asked amazing questions, and we had a great discussion. Then people came afterwards and they bought more copies. And so we were signing you know, two, three, four, five copies um, for one person saying, oh, I got this for my friends. I got this for my mom, my sister, my aunt, my cousin, um, so that I can talk about it with them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I think about where we are now, it seems like in some ways we are further divided than we even were, if that's possible, before George Floyd's murder and before this, you know, quote unquote, racial reckoning that we went through so, uh, Christine, you know, one, I guess, is, is that your sense? And if it is, then, you know, how do you even, for some people, get them to have, you know, the desire, the inclination to venture out of, of, of their comfort zone, out of their, their camp, you know, to think about what it might be like if I were to have allyship or friendship with, you know, someone of a different race? Sure, sure. You know, I think it's so interesting because as we were talking about earlier with, you know, how social media really amplified that moment and, you know, so much was televised. There was just so much sort of, it appeared this, you know, united front on this issue. Um, I think that when that sort of faded away, you know, people thought that the work had stopped and that, you know, <laughs> the work had, had not been continuing. When in reality, this work, we we're, where we are is we are continuing the work of many amazing folks before us, many amazing leaders, many amazing abolitionists and activists and advocates, right? And so the work has still continued. And I think what Rebecca Notbecky really allows folks to do, which is what we wanted them to do all along, which is start with self, right? And then start within your home then branch out within your community, right? And so I think, you know, there is this illusion that things have stopped and that we're so divided and we're no longer talking about these issues. But in reality, the people who have been at the forefront of this work and grassroots organizations and committed to educating and really dismantling structural racism, this work has continued and it will continue. Um, and so I, I don't, I have a very different perspective as, as a historian and someone who has been, um, you know, at the fore, at the forefront of this work. Um, but yeah, I can see, I can see how that, you know, perspective is and, and hopefully Rebecca, not Becky can sort of, can sort of help folks get to the next side. So, you know, we hear a lot about Karen's and, and Karen's became very, popular over the last couple of years with you know, these horrific stories of white women uh -huh. using their privilege and, uh, you know, to literally attack black folks, have them arrested, you know, have them harassed by the police. What is Becky? Like, you know, if you think about Becky in relationship to a Karen, uh, Catherine, what is Becky? And for the purposes of this book, you know, what, how are you using that moniker, Becky? Mm -hmm. So Becky is, I mean, a Becky, right? If we're going to go with the the term that's <laughs> thrown around, um, is a white woman who is sort of, you know, clueless, um, well-intentioned oftentimes, wants to do better, um, doesn't always think about the impact that her actions have, um, uh, kind of a, yeah, like a well-intentioned cluelessness, maybe unaware of the privilege that she has. In this case, Rebecca Myland 
is very aware of her privilege. She's very uncomfortable with her privilege. And she, in the wake of a George Floyd-like event, which we've fictionalized in the novel, we are three years post that as the novel begins, where that was an awakening for her. And she did do quite a bit of work in starting a diversity committee and getting all the right books for her children and reading, or at least purchasing the books on the anti-racism syllabus that went viral. Um, And she wanted to lose the nickname Becky. Um, She doesn't want to be a Becky. But in this case, we're really taking a look at the fact that whether or not she goes by Becky or not, um, her actions speak louder than that. And that's what we hope people start to really think about. When we come forward, more with Christine Platt and Catherine Wigington Green and their new book that's out just hit the shelves about a couple of days ago. It's called Rebecca, Not Becky. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. We are back with Christine Platt and Catherine Wigington Green. They are co-authors of a new book, Rebecca, Not Becky. And we're talking about how the characters, one black woman, one white woman, both suburban stay-at-home housewives who at the beginning of the book represent a lot of the stereotypes that we have of both uh, really evolve into something much more nuanced and, and something, uh, you know, as characters, I, I think, reveal to us the complexities that all of us have and how we buy into stereotypes and, and how once we buy into those stereotypes, how difficult it can be to overcome them. Uh, let me ask you this, uh, Catherine, a big part of what this book does is is really unravel those stereotypes that we have of, of what a suburban white woman stay-at-home mom does or thinks and talk and the way that she talks. And the same thing about a suburban Black woman. And I think oftentimes in our relationships, it is those stereotypes that make it difficult for us to trust people, uh, to form lasting and true relationships. What can we get from the book that, you know, may help in that? Because I, I still think for me, you know, I, I see that played out And I think, you know, we just, our minds are programmed in some ways. When we see certain behaviors by certain people, we automatically think, you know, negatively Becky, Karen, or, you know, whatever moniker you may give, particularly if you're seeing a white woman. I actually had one of those experiences this morning on an airplane. So, uh, you know, how do we got to deprogram that the way we've all, I think, been conditioned to think about each other? Yeah, you know, Christine mentioned something earlier um, about starting with self when we try to engage in this type of work. And I think that's really important. So I want to kind of put another um, kind of exclamation point on that, because one of the things that we see about Rebecca, she does reflect a stereotype of a very busy, suburban, white, wealthy mother who has created a very, very hectic life for herself in managing all the things in her household and all of her kids' activities and being hyper-involved in everything, running all the committees, planning all the, the all the fundraisers and events at school. Um, and she keeps herself busy um, in a way that a lot of us do, which is an escape to not really have a lot of personal reflection. And so she isn't quite able to show up in friendships as authentically as one would hope with anyone really, or any of her relationships because of this very, very chaotic and urgent world that she's um, spun up for herself. And so I think one thing that we hope and that, that I hope that people gain when they think about these kinds of friendships and these relationships is that we never know what's going on with someone. 
we learned some things about Rebecca later on in the book, and I don't want to give away about things that kind of unravel some of those stereotypes um, about her and gives a little bit of explanation about what might be happening. And once we we do that, I mean, I think that what we have seen with our discussions about the book for people who have read it already um, is that it you read this and then it compels you to tell your own story and do some of your own self-reflection. And then we can, as we start to realize that we are complex and we have a lot going on, we are able to recognize that other people around us do. And when Rebecca, we hope, and other, other white women and anyone really who reads this start to think about what's going on with them and recognize that everybody else has something going on that we don't know about, that's when we can actually start to show up for one another and be in relationship. So Christine, you're a historian. So, you know, so much about race and racism is not individuals, right? It's about systems. And so these two women, as much as they reflect, as much as, you know, they may do the work, whether it's with a professional therapist or their, you know, spiritual leader, just the work on themselves, we all still live in these systems that we have seen, particularly after George Floyd, that are stubborn and that are slow to change and that are resistant in many instances to change. So even though, you know, uh, Rebecca may do the work when, you know, the Black character in this, you know, book, as you or I as Black women show up at a restaurant or show up at a job interview or show up at whatever you know, it, it's not just that individual white woman, perhaps, that's done the work. It's that system. So, yeah. you know, talk to us about that, because I think that is just as, you know, can be just as, as challenging for folks and, uh, you know, can create these these divisions that seemingly are almost impossible to bridge. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's so interesting. I, I love that you say that because, you know, one of the reasons that a lot of these stereotypes persist is based on like the experience that you had this morning. Right. You know, mm -hmm. and I think this is what the character DeAndre is struggling with. Um, and I, I, you know, one of the things that I think is so important and why we really wanted to build these authentic characters is that you understand um, throughout the text, why they have some of the prejudice and bias that they do. Mm -hmm. Right. And it is because of our lived experiences. And that is why it's so important to remember that this work is not only individual work, it is also collective work, mm -hmm. right? And so if we individually do our part, the hope is that overall, collectively, right, the collective of people um, can do, and we've seen it done historically, dismantle some of these systems of oppression and laws, you know, um, that, that are unfair and prejudiced and biased, right? Like, yes, it does take time. And I, I think that, you know, we struggle with time um, because we want to see it happen in our lifetime or we want to see immediate results, right? But if we think of how old this planet is <laughs> and how much change has been made in the past, even if we just say the past 200 years, the past 100 years, right? The past 60 years, we know that change is happening, right? And that is because just like these systems exist, they were built by people, right? Which means that people can dismantle them. And that is our individual and collective work. And so the more people that we can get to understand that and to join this movement through, you know, the anti-racist syllabus, through books like Rebecca, Not Becky, that is, quote, the work, right? To do the work individually so that collectively we can be liberated from these systems. 
I hear you. And I, I think that's noble. And I think, yes, in theory, that is, you know, what we all should aspire to that enough of us are doing the work, but in this moment, uh, where it feels like the balance of power, uh, you know, Catherine is such that I don't have, you know, I am so inconsequential in terms of what I can do individually, you know, I just wonder if people really feel empowered, you know, to think that their actions, that their individual actions can overcome, you know, say the the government actions of, of the of someone like the governor of Florida who's banning books, who has determined that black history should not be taught accurately if it makes white kids feel uncomfortable. So if I am looking at the world and, you know, watching that happen in states like Florida and watching it happen in states like Texas, how do I not look at my white neighbor who may be doing the work that you are talking about and feel like, oh, my God, she or he, you know, they're part of this bigger system that is making it impossible for me to even have my kids read a book by Toni Morrison or. Alice Walker. I mean, this this is a big question. Um, I know. <laughs> and I love it. And you're not alone in this, of course. I mean, it feels insurmountable. The moment we're in, the fact that information is so readily available, we can find out what's going on in all of these different places. And it just, the overwhelm is so intense. It feels as if we can't do anything. Um, and so what I say to that is that, yeah, I can't, I, I, I feel overwhelmed at times too. And all we can do really at times is look at our corner of the world. I always say to people, like, think about what you're called to. Is it, is it education? Is it healthcare? Is it housing? Is it crime, criminal um, justice reform? Is it healthcare? Any of these facets of our lives and race is a layer on them. Um, they're influenced by racism. And anything we're called to, we can have some kind of an impact. I mean, even Rebecca in, in the novel, you know, she decides that the way to be involved in the work is to have a Black friend and to have a diversity committee and to have food, fun, and festivals at her school. Not that there's anything wrong with having fun or having friendships, interracial friendships, but she could actually be doing quite a bit toward interrupting racial inequity without having a black friend, without having trying to bring diversity into her school. Um, and that's that's a discussion that we hope is it can be had with this. With yeah, the let's talk about that. Like even the, the notion of having a black friend, like for a lot of people, that is in and of itself, again, is, you know, kind of part and parcel of of this whole conversation around race. So I want to talk about that, the decision to have a, a black friend. And I also want to talk about socioeconomics because layered on the race issue is these are wealthy women. So they have different issues and, uh, you know, different opportunities than, you know, women who are not wealthy and these issues of race and privilege obviously play out very differently based on one's socioeconomics. Uh, more with Catherine Platt and Catherine, uh, I'm sorry, Christine Platt and Catherine Wigington Green when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back with Christine Platt and Catherine Wigington Green. These are two first-time authors who have written a very, very 
a successful book called Rebecca Not Becky has gotten amazing reviews and I hope all of you pick it up. It's a perfect book to uh, give away to a friend or a family member uh, for Christmas. This is the season uh, and books are always a great gift. I want to ask you, Christine, though, about socioeconomics. So obviously the struggles that uh, black and white women face are different based on you know where you fall in this country because money is just as important where you live, what kind of car you drive, and you know all of that has such a significant impact on you know how these uh, you know issues of race and motherhood friendships play out. So why the decision to make the two protagonists in the book uh, you know wealthy suburban housewives? <laughs> Yeah, again, you know, I really wanted to show some some authenticity and a different um, dynamic than we traditionally see um, with Black narratives that sort of explore these topics, right? And, you know, we are friends with many uh, wealthy folks, right? And uh, we wanted to show what that looks like because um, a lot of the friends, at least I'll speak for myself and my own community, many of us are first generation everything, Right. And so there are different challenges, um, you know, that come along with being um, a first time wealth builder in in your family. Right. And I think also to show that, you know, wealth does not make these issues go away. Right. I think oftentimes we think, okay, if a person, you know, is in this neighborhood or if they have this title or if they have, you know, this amount of money in their bank, this could never happen to them. Um, and even that is explored um, in this narrative, right? And so, you know, we wanted to sort of reach that demographic um, that is, is lesser explored um, with this topic when it comes to fictionalizing uh, racial, racialized narratives. Um, and we did want to explore that generational wealth um, dynamic, right? We just thought it was really important to sort of uh, show our characters, you know, as uh, in DeAndrea's case, she's first gen, um, you know, in her family, however, her husband comes from more so generational wealth, right? And so even within their own family dynamic, there are challenges there. And, and you're absolutely right. We have to keep socioeconomics um, at, at the forefront of this conversation as well, because it does it does matter when it when it comes to these to these topics. And do you think, uh, Catherine, you're the character Rebecca that you were responsible for? You know, giving life and giving dialogue. Would it be different, or how different? If it would be different, how different would it be if she was not a wealthy stay-at-home suburban housewife? If she was a white woman, you know, in the South that worked at Walmart as a greeter, you mm -hmm. know, how would you write about her? Would she still be seeking to have a black friend? You know, like, how, how would she be different if she would be? Oh, that's a great question. One thing that's interesting is that because I've been helping lead dialogue around race and racism around the country for the past 15 or so years, I've been in lots of different spaces with lots of different socioeconomic um, demographics of people. And I've found that this notion of interracial friendship um, 
wanting to have diversity. I have, except for when I've been around people who are explicitly bigoted, I do find that this is a common thread wherever I have been, especially when I go to predominantly white spaces, even in areas where um, there are people who might be a more working class environment, um, blue collar, all the way up into, you know, Fortune 500 companies and, you know, wealthy elite institutions. Um, what I think is interesting about Rebecca and using wealth. Uh, can I just stop you for a second? Yeah. It's funny that you say that. If that's the case, this is kind of off topic, but it just, you know, comes to mind for me. Why are we so segregated in this country? If you say you go into white spaces and white people desire diversity and desire to have black friends or black relationships, why do we have these communities all over the country where, you know, white folks live in their side of town and black people live on theirs? If, if there's this great desire, why do we see more integrated neighborhoods? Yeah, you mean, that's actually, <laughs> well, it's schools. not even really off topic. I mean, it's not even really off topic of what we're talking about, right? I mean, this is, we are so segregated. I mean, there's an article today in the Washington Post about how the racial gap in housing is widening even further than it has um, in a really long time. It's getting, it's, it's, it's getting worse, it feels like. Um, what happens with Rebecca is that she, here we have an opportunity to look at someone with this wealth. This is another way of how we're using wealth in the story to take sort of a satirical look at this hyper-focus on creating diversity in our lives. Um, Rebecca is, is aspirational. She wanted to transcend class. She grew up um, in a blue collar working class family in the Midwest, and she now has attained this wealth and she is desperate to keep it and not be found out that she doesn't belong. And so when we are motivated in that way, where we are trying to be climbing social, social class climbing, and then she arrives there and then she thinks, well, this is not the kind of life that I imagined for myself or my children and her children are taking her to task. She then wants to create diversity in her life by bringing people of color into the world that she has. So if diversity truly were important for her, as I can say for a lot of people, white people in spaces I've been where they say diversity is important, well, then they might have actually made different decisions about where they live, where they work, where they worship. But instead, what we do is we try to curate the life that we want, the wealth that we want, and, and arrive. And then we want to bring in other people to make us feel good about having diversity and to make us feel as if we are engaging in this, in this movement and, and have interesting lives. And that's the interesting part about Rebecca is that, um, you know, and it's fine that she lives in Rolling Hills. That's a choice, except that then diversity really isn't the priority. Well, then would you say that your statement where you go into these white spaces and white folks really want to be in diverse settings and have black friends isn't really what they want. They want black people to come into their world and kind of, you know, adjust to the world that they've created because that's a different kind of statement. Yeah, I think that that is actually... Um, a big part of it. And the reason why we're still so segregated is structural racism, going back to the history discussion and that through line about housing and, and, and class. Redlining. All that. <laughs> yes, all of this is part of it. This is how we find ourselves here. And if we continue to focus on, you know, what's going on online and social media and using, you know, you know, posting the photos and uh, of having the right books that we're supposed to read. And, and you know, Rebecca's very much in her head ruminating about whether or not she's using the right language and she gets DeAndre's name wrong. And then she worries that she committed a microaggression and she just spins <laughs> out and is so <laughs> hyper-focused on it. That leaves no headspace or bandwidth or energy to engage in some of this greater work. Um, and so that's a, that's a point that comes up in the, in the book as well. 
Yeah, and just in our last couple of minutes, I do want to ask you, uh, Christine, what's next? Is there a part two to this book? Do we learn more about these characters? Do you spin them off into their own stories? Uh, we saw, you know, several books that were written during this period. Uh, the the only black girl and, and lots of others, you know, went on to become series. Some, you know, big, uh, uh, you know, screen movies. What what is the hope for you and Catherine? Uh, as you think about what's next for these two characters or, or just, you know, exploring these topics in fictional books. Well, I just love how you just laid out the most beautiful <laughs> master plan for us. So uh, with, the, uh, with the TV show and the movie, movie. you know, no. you, see, you see, I said books with an S. Yes. So. <laughs> yes. You know, I think we are open to really exploring any way that we can continue this dialogue and this important conversation, right? Obviously, the more mainstream that we can get it, you know, we would love to have a television show and really be able to show the, the layered complexities of these characters and of this issue, right, that we can't do so much in a book, right? We don't want to have like a thousand page book for folks to read, um, you know, and if the opportunity presents itself for us to, you know, continue with this narrative in a meaningful way, because again, at the, at the root of our work is really bringing about meaningful change, then absolutely, we would, we would love to explore that. Um, and I so appreciate you getting um, just, you know, the importance of this of this book and what it can do. Um, and, you know, I'll definitely let you know if we get that TV show. We'll have a <laughs> and, and we'll be in Southern California to talk about the book in January. Oh, fantastic. Definitely let yeah. us know. I'd love to share it with my viewers and listeners. Again, it's Christine Platt and Catherine Wigington Green. Their book is Rebecca, not Becky. Just hit the bookshelves this December. Check it out. A great book to give again to your girlfriends, to your family members, to your daughter, your mother. Also a great book for your book club. So support these two women. They're trying to do something really important with this book. And again, Big congratulations and keep us posted on what happens with these characters and the work that you're doing around race. So important. Uh, next voice that you hear will be Robin Ayers and the Rye Report right here on KBLA Talk 1580.